If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to John chapter 6, fourth book of the New Testament, Gospel of John. We'll be again this morning in chapter 6 in our regular series through this book. Here at Emmanuel, we seek to preach expositionally through books of the Bible. We've been in a series for a few months now in John's Gospel. We come this morning again, actually, to chapter 6, verses 35 through 45. Uh, We considered these words from the Lord last week as well. We'll consider them again this week as a matter of our exposition of the Word. Please follow along as I read John chapter 6, verses 35 through 45, and then we'll actually jump down again and read verses 63 through 65. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And now please jump down to verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one comes, can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray. Father, whenever your word is open before us, we must be aware that we are in need of your assistance. We're in need of your help in order to rightly understand it, to open it up. We depend not on the words of any man, but we depend on your spirit at work within us to bring the truth to life and to show us what your word teaches So do that thing that you did for your disciples years ago, recorded for us in Luke 24. Open our minds to understand the scriptures, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I said to us last time that uh, the way John 6 is uh, structured and ordered, uh, you have, in the first half of the chapter, an overwhelmingly positive response to the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, beginning with the miraculous provision of food for crowds numbering over 5,000 people. Uh, Jesus performs an amazing sign and provides bread for them. And of course, the response is so positive. We found the prophet, the king, uh, who Moses told us about, who David spoke of, and uh, they wished to come and to make him king. And of course, Jesus evaded uh, their efforts at making him king and actually goes across the Sea of Capernaum And there the crowds follow him. 
and uh, again evidence this very positive response to Jesus. However, as it becomes clearer and clearer what it is that Jesus is teaching, uh, it becomes clear that these crowds really are not coming to Jesus for Jesus, but rather they're coming for the benefits that Jesus provides for them or that they think He might provide for them. This is summed up in Jesus' words in verse 27, which we didn't read, but He says, do not labor for the bread that perishes, like the food I gave you several verses earlier, but labor for uh, the food that endures to eternal life. And He tells us in verse 35 that He Himself is the bread of life, that whoever comes to Him will never hunger, whoever believes in Him will never thirst. And from verse 35 on, uh, the one's positive reaction to Jesus gets increasingly negative. Uh, to the point of mass defection, uh, leaving the Lord Jesus. His disciples walk with Him no more, the end of the chapter tells us, with the exception, of course, of the twelve. But even among the twelve, we learn that one of them, Judas, will betray Jesus and was not a true believer. Well, we sought to open up this text week after week. Last week, we considered the, the theme, the doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation as it's presented to us in verses 35 through 45, and again in verses 63 through 65, excuse me. And I want to recast, actually, some of that material, remind you of the three main headings that were shared last week from John chapter 6 in these verses. First of all, we saw last week that the coming of a person to Jesus has its origin in the sovereign will of God. If someone is to come to Jesus and believe on Him, as so many of you have done, uh, that decision to come to Jesus actually has its origin in something that happened beforehand, mainly the sovereign electing power of God to draw sinners to Himself. And this is found for us, expressed for us in verse 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The second main heading we observed, people are incapable of coming to Jesus unless God sovereignly draws them. Like people do not have the ability in sin, uh, in themselves, to actually come to Jesus. God must draw them sovereignly to Himself. And we see this plainly, I think, in verse 44, where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then thirdly and finally we saw that the coming of a person to Jesus depends on the life-giving power of God's Spirit. The coming of a person to Jesus depends on the life-giving power of God's Spirit. Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And I presented each of these three points to establish one main truth, namely that the decisive factor in the salvation of a sinner is ultimately the sovereign will of God. Why are some people saved and not others? Why do some people come and not others? Why do you have settings like this where the gospel is preached and some believe and some do not? Ultimately, the answer is to be found, the decisive factor is to be found in the sovereign activity of God Himself in calling a sinner to Himself, drawing a sinner to Himself, and sending the Holy Spirit to give life. And sought to argue last Sunday that this understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation uh, is first of all clearly taught in Scripture. I hope you see it in those verses. But secondly, that it should be accepted and embraced by all of God's people. 
But then I argued that we ought not to only accept the doctrine of sovereign election, but God helping us, we ought to love the doctrine of sovereign election. And to that end, gave four encouragements to help us in loving uh, this doctrine as it's presented in Scripture. First of all, I said the doctrine of divine sovereignty and salvation ensures that all boasting is in God. All boasting is in God. We are saved purely and totally by grace alone. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and as Paul says in Ephesians 2, he made us alive even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It's all to his glory. All boasting must be in God. Secondly, the doctrine of divine sovereignty and salvation provides the most solid foundation for Christian assurance. We see that in our text, don't we? All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. My words are spirit and life. The Lord keeps all those who come to Him. And if my salvation, your salvation, is dependent on the immutable, unfailing, unchangeable will of a sovereign God, if my life is hid with God in Christ, I'm eternally secure. You are eternally secure. You can go to bed tonight knowing that you are safe in Jesus because ultimately salvation is in His hands. The third encouragement to help us in loving the doctrine of divine sovereignty and salvation is because this doctrine ensures, ensures the success of world missions. It really is striking how many people over the centuries from so many diverse backgrounds have actually believed the Christian message and forsaken all in order to embrace and believe the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow Him. Now all over the world, millions into the billions of people call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Can you imagine uh, here with these crowds, the 11 disciples uh, are left at the end of it all. The crowds leave and here's Jesus with the 12 11 of whom truly believe him. And he's just said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. I think those disciples had to walk by faith and not by sight to really believe that. And yet look at all that has come in the last 2,000 years in God ensuring that he would have his souls, and that Christ would have that prize for which he died, an inheritance of sinners from every nation under the sun. Fourth encouragement, that is that the, the doctrine of divine sovereignty and salvation gives hope that anyone can be saved, that anyone can be saved, not, not the most likely or the people that we've been working on for a long, long time or that we put in sort of the right setting, but if salvation is in the hands of God and if He will have all of His elect, if the Lord has set His sights on saving a person, no one will stop Him. There's no mountain that will not be moved. The power of the gospel will prevail in God's sovereign purposes. His word will not return to Him void. And so that should give us tremendous hope. Because I know many of you are praying for lost loved ones and friends and family and co-workers that seem so far from Christ. It's looking slim. The odds are not great that they're going to come. But if God and His sovereignty would save them, nothing will stop Him. And those encouragements were presented to help us to love the doctrine of sovereign election. Now today we come to a new concern. Staying on this subject of divine sovereignty and salvation, but a new concern, and it is this. If the Bible teaches that God is totally sovereign in salvation, and that His will is the decisive factor in granting the new birth, then what implications will follow for the church? 
If God is sovereign in salvation, what implications will follow for us as a local church? I'm thinking corporately, not just individually, but as a body of believers. What relevance does this doctrine have for a local church? How does our understanding of these verses in John 6 affect our understanding of the life and ministry of the local church, like us here at Emmanuel? So today's sermon is very much a part two of last week's sermon, and because it's a part two, uh, I feel a little more justified uh, than normal in doing less exposition in this sermon and more application. So much of the exposition was last week. That sermon is online, if you didn't hear it. Uh, we sought to expound these verses. Um, this morning, my goal is to try to apply these verses to the life and ministry of the church, and there will be some exposition along the way as well, but I hope that largely our time together will be centered on application. So all I want to do this morning is to take that truth that God is indeed sovereign in salvation, that it is the Spirit who gives life, that God is in charge of the fruit of conversion, and give us six implications for the life and ministry of the local church. Six implications for the life and ministry of the local church. We'll spend more time on the first three than the last three, okay? So first of all, if God is totally sovereign in salvation, and you can just, if you're taking notes, you can write that at the top because they all start with that preamble, okay? If God is totally sovereign in salvation, we should never make numbers the ultimate measure of success in ministry. If God is totally sovereign in salvation, first of all, we should never make numbers the ultimate measure of success in ministry. And this is an implication based largely on the context of this passage. One thing that is so striking about John 6, I think, is the vast numbers of people who enthusiastically are following Jesus at the beginning of the chapter, and just the very small handful that continues to follow him by the end of the chapter. Large crowds were attracted to Jesus in John 6. Turns out only 11 of them were true believers. What's the lesson? There's tons of lessons, actually. But one of them is we should not be fooled by the crowds. Brothers and sisters, don't be fooled by crowds. It's striking when you go through the Gospels to see how utterly unimpressed Jesus is with crowds, and yet how earnestly concerned he is with discerning true fruit in the lives of real Christians, however many of them there are. Isn't it interesting that not once in the New Testament are numbers introduced to us as a metric of success? You can search the Gospels. You can search the letters of the Apostle Paul. You will never find them parading numbers as the ultimate measure of faithfulness in ministry or as a measure of the health of a particular local church. However, frequently, the inspired writers will often draw attention to growth in personal holiness, progress in discipleship, mutual love among the body and the preservation of church unity, all as good indicators of the spirit-given health of a local church body. It's interesting, Acts 15, verse 36, Paul and Barnabas are going to return to the churches that they had established. It says, verse 36, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see not how many they are, but how they are. Brothers and sisters, it's more important that we are growing in the faith 
than necessarily that we grow numerically. Numbers are not unimportant, but they're never presented to us as a measure of success in the New Testament. And yet, isn't it amazing how so many churches today are taken up with decisions and baptisms and attendance and budgets as if numbers are the ultimate foolproof measure of church health? Friends, you may hear people say, numbers never lie. Numbers lie all the time. I believe strongly that what the church in America needs is an emancipation from its fascination with worldly metrics of success. I think I've told this story before, but I was recently in a gathering of about 25 pastors or so, and uh, the gathering was particularly to strategize about how to reach more people with the gospel, which is a very good reason to get a bunch of pastors together, okay? And um, the leader of this group was kind of leading the discussion, and he wrote up on the board, uh, the whiteboard, the word metrics, colon, and sort of put the question to the gathering, what are going to be our metrics if we're truly succeeding? And he put up on the whiteboard attendance and baptisms, and then said, otherwise, how else will we know if we're winning? Brothers and sisters, I submit to you that that is precisely what ails the American church today. I'm thinking that if Jesus invited people down for an altar call in verse 34, they all would have come. They had full stomachs and they had half a gospel, and with that they were content. But as soon as they become more aware, as soon as they have more clarity on what the biblical gospel is, And what the call to discipleship is, it's so interesting how the crowds immediately vanish and evaporate down to 11 true believers who say to Jesus, you have the words of eternal life and that's what we want. Where else can we go? Brothers and sisters, if we make attendance and baptism our metrics of success, then we are well on our way to compromising the gospel. People have been coming up with all kinds of ways to generate large attendance and baptisms in churches. But I submit to you that anything less or more than the preaching of the biblical gospel is not sanctioned by Christ and will not have his blessing on the last day. Look, it may look very impressive in the here and now, but that false fruit will burn up at the last day if it has not been the fruit of the biblical gospel and the fruit of God's Spirit. As a church, we should learn that the God who is sovereign in salvation has the right to determine what true fruit looks like. And he is the one who determines the metrics of true church health. And so, my friends, I argue that we should never make numbers in themselves, in themselves, and more people in attendance, more baptisms, bigger buildings, larger budgets. We should never make numbers in themselves the ultimate measure of success. Remember the words of the Lord to Samuel. 1 Samuel 16, uh, Samuel is called of God to go and find the Lord's anointed. And first he finds Eliab, the oldest son, and he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And this is what the Lord says to Samuel. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We look at big gatherings, we think, wow, this must be really impressive. Listen, there's all sorts of silly ways to draw a crowd. The Lord doesn't see as man sees. The Lord looks on the heart. 
And we should ask ourselves, examine ourselves. When the Lord looks at the heart of Emmanuel Church, what will he find? And with that, we should be concerned. With that, we should be prayerful. Now, secondly, second implication for the church. We should never make numbers the main metric of success. Secondly, if God is totally sovereign in salvation, we should be patient in ministry and depend on the Spirit of God for fruit. We should be patient in ministry and depend on the Spirit of God for fruit. John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We see that the fruit of conversion depends on the internal work of God in the human heart to draw the sinner to himself. Then in verse 63, he says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. In other words, it is the Spirit who produces the fruit. What's the point? We depend on God to bring forth fruit. We of ourselves cannot manufacture conversions. All fruit in church ministry depends on the Spirit of God. He is referred to as the Lord of the harvest. He's referred to as the vine dresser, the one who tends the vine and seeks to bring about fruit. God commands the fruit. God gives the growth. He yields the increase. The Apostle Paul speaks about this with striking clarity in 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, there is certain Christians who are tempted to give a little too much credit to their favorite celebrity preachers. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Christ. And Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What then is Paul? But servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Fruit is in God's hands. He commands the growth. If we see fruit in our ministry, it's because he's given it to us. And brothers and sisters, if we don't, it's because in this particular season, he's not giving it to us. God commands the fruit. We can't manufacture it. We don't have the ability to reverse engineer the working of God's spirit. That's why I get very uncomfortable with these conferences that, hey, brother so-and-so is going to stand up and tell us how he grew his church from 10 to 1,000. What do you do, brother? Let's reverse engineer that and expect that will happen at my church. It doesn't work that way. Some plant and sow, some water, doesn't matter. God is the one who gives the growth. The wind blows where it wishes, Jesus says. You hear the sound of it but you do not know where it comes from. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. You can't control the wind. Oh, you see its effects. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from. The Spirit of God works that way. can't catch him in a bottle and reverse engineer the working of God's Spirit. Fruit in ministry is a matter of God's blessing and God's timing. You ask some people, how do you measure success in ministry? And they immediately think in terms of Fruitfulness. Well, attendance was up. We've added new members. We had a budget surplus. And who doesn't want to be fruitful and see lots of conversions and ministries started and churches planted? We all want to see that. But what does that mean to a William Carey who goes to India 
to sow the gospel for the first time and doesn't see a convert for six years. God called William Carey to minister faithfully. He's planting, he's sowing, and who knows but that others will water and receive the increase, and many others have. In either case, it'll be God who gives the growth, and He will give the growth when He wants to give the growth, and He will give the growth only to the degree to which He wants to give the growth. Fruit is in the hands of a sovereign God. So might I suggest that rather than thinking in terms of fruitfulness as the ultimate measure of health in a church, we should think in terms of faithfulness. There are lots of careful, deliberate, slow, patient, faithful Christians who minister for years and see very little, little fruit. God is no less pleased with them. And He may be more pleased with them, even, than the brother or sister who is seeing all kinds of fruit. My friend, don't be tempted and controlled by the dangerous allure of speed in ministry. That's not the way God works. Sometimes He gives rapid growth. Sometimes He brings revival. But His normal purpose is slow, steady, patient, faithful ministry and growth over long decades. The way God is pleased to work is through Sunday school teachers who give themselves for 30 years to children year after year to preach the gospel. Parents who day after day are just sowing that seed. Pastors who faithfully preach the word week after week. They're not trying to hit a home run every time, just trying to make contact. Steady, slow, patient growth is the way that God normally works. And brothers and sisters, here at Emmanuel, we've been in church for about a year and a half, the Lord has not yet chosen to test our patience from the standpoint of numbers. Our attendance, our membership, and budget have grown since the very first day we gathered together. But if all that changed, would we still be here? It's exciting to move into bigger and bigger rooms. We've moved into three or four of them now. It's exciting to see new people added to the church. It's exciting to have more funds to give to new missions partners. But none of those things are essential. None of those things make us a church. And none of those things are necessarily indicators of health. I hope in our case they are. But they're not of themselves indicators of health. If God was pleased to call us to a ministry of sowing, and if He determined that we would see little fruit in our generation, and if He called us to a patient ministry of building a foundation for the next generation to reap the fruit, would we still be here? The old Anglican minister Charles Bridges said this, the seed may lie under the ground until we do, and then spring up. The seed may lie under the ground until we do, and then spring up. It's interesting. I've spoken to three parents, or excuse me, three children, three, well, they're adults now, uh, in the last month, who were all converted shortly after losing one of their parents. Those faithful, godly parents never got to see the fruit of conversion in their child. But they prayed, they sowed, and the seed lied under the ground of those hearts even until the parents themselves did, and then sprung up. Didn't get to see the fruit in this life. They will enjoy the fruit forever with Christ in glory. Could God be calling some of you parents to such a ministry? Can you trust that should you die, 
The God who is sovereign in salvation may be pleased to use the seeds you planted long after you're gone to win your child to himself. We ought to have that sort of confidence if salvation is indeed in the, sovereign, in the hands of a sovereign God. It's not up to us. He commands the growth. He commands the fruit. And He will accomplish His purposes. Brothers and sisters, if we understand that fruit is in God's hands, that He is the Lord of the harvest, that the souls of the elect are in His hands, then we have a theology that prepares us to be patient. We are equipped to be a patient people. If God is sovereign in salvation, then we don't need to pant breathlessly after immediate results in our ministry as a church. We will look to our sovereign God in seasons of sowing and reaping, knowing that we depend on Him for fruit. Now thirdly, the third implication of this doctrine for the church. If God is totally sovereign in salvation, we should resolve that we will only seek to win people with the gospel. We should resolve that we will only seek to win people with the gospel, which alone is the power of God unto salvation. We should resolve, I can say it negatively, that we will not try to win people by carnal means. And, and sort of the proof text for this, the verse that should be in our minds is John 6, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh is no help at all. And so we should resolve we will not win people with the flesh. We will not win people by carnal means, God being our helper. And yet, isn't it interesting that we so often resort or can resort to fleshly means to win people? This was precisely, admittedly, the philosophy of the seeker-sensitive movement. Let me find something in your flesh that you want, and let me use that as a means of drawing you in, and not just drawing you in, but getting you to stay. So people want rock music, let's give them rock music. People want choirs, let's give them choirs. People want special programs, we'll give them special programs. People want the lights turned low to induce some sort of emotional experience. Let's turn the lights down. People want short sermons, short prayers, lots of videos, special music, polished production, cool interior decor. Let's give it to them. And what are we doing? We're looking for a point of contact in man's flesh in order to get him and to keep him. But my friend, Jesus is clear. The flesh is no help at all. He says in John 3, that which is born of flesh is flesh. Remember, what you win people with is what you win them to. You win people with the flesh, you win them to the flesh. The appetite you create is the appetite you must fill. And I can't help but observe the parallels with parenting. It's true, the appetite you create is the appetite you must fill. My wife and I have a very pleasant disagreement right now. Sometimes we eat in the living room. She gives Dominic little pieces of what she's eating, and I don't like to do that because I'm hungry and I want all my food. But what does he do? He comes up to me. He has an appetite now. Dad's got a donut, and Mom gives me some of the donut. Surely he will give me the donut as well. The appetite you create is the appetite you must fill. You win people by fleshly means. You will win them too. 
fleshly means. You know, I, I think if we as a church can come up with all sorts of techniques and strategies that appeal to the flesh, I, I, I think we could do it. We have a lot of smart people here, people with a lot of degrees. A lot of us have taken marketing classes. Uh, a lot of people with energy and good ideas and an entrepreneurial sort of spirit. If we wanted to double attendance in the next year, I think we could do it pretty easily, actually. How could we do it? Well, there are a number of things we might do, things we might change in order to ensure that we can double attendance by 2020. Number one, put a lot more money into our music budget. Take it from the missions budget, put it in the music budget. Emphasize production and polish. Seek to eliminate all dead space in the service. Try to run the service like a television program. Just kind of one thing after another after another. God forbid we have any sort of silence or reflection or dead space because that makes us uncomfortable. Put on, excuse me, put only really attractive people up on the stage. Have you noticed that with popular Christian groups? I'm not saying they're bad motives, but they're all like supermodels. All the major praise groups. They all look really great. Wear cool clothes, they're very attractive. Maybe we could adopt that policy. Stop asking people to commit to church membership. Just let them come. Be as they are. Don't fence the Lord's Supper. In fact, don't even do the Lord's Supper because it's kind of weird and it makes us look bad and people don't really know what to do with it. I shouldn't have to tell you that church discipline is absolutely a no-no. Don't ever do that. Preach very short mini-series on more relevant cultural issues. As one famous false teacher has recently said, just stop looking at the Old Testament entirely. Don't even look in that thing. Put the most winsome and charismatic people in leadership, and if they have an MBA, so much the better. I guarantee you, if we took this approach, I think we could double attendance in a year's time. But what are we doing? We're relying on the flesh to build a ministry and not the Spirit of God. And I think this was precisely what Jesus was concerned with in John 6. And I think it's precisely what Paul was concerned with in 1 Corinthians 2. Let me just read the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 2. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In other words, the gospel. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible or crafty words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The means matters. What is your faith resting on? Paul says, does it rest on the wisdom of men? The marketing strategies of men, the charisma of men, the music of men, the manipulative evangelistic ploys of men, or will it rest on the power of God? The gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, which Paul tells us in another place, is the power of God unto salvation. Not whatever sort of crafty, crafty marketing plan we could come up with. Rather, it's the gospel. It's the Spirit who gives life. And so here's a test. Just ask yourself this question. If we took away fill in the blank, would people still come? If we took away a particular type of music, a particular program, 
what have you, would people still come? To return to our passage in John 6, if you took away the bread that perishes, would the crowds still come? If you gave them only the bread of life, would they stay? And in this case, in John 6, 5,000 people didn't stay. As soon as they took away that carnal thing, that fleshly thing, the bread that perishes, and Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, what you need is me, they're gone. They're gone. What you win people with is what you win them to. We must never adopt the world's methods in order to win people, and we must, we must never be embarrassed of the whole gospel and fail to preach it in its entirety. I said this in the equip class. Uh, we recently had Pastor Bill Hughes here at Emmanuel, a wonderful uh, English pastor, English gentleman. And we're able to interview him in the morning during the equip hour uh, before the congregation. And then we had actually a second time in the afternoon with all the sort of ministerial students and others uh, for a special time of Q&A, specifically surrounding the issue of pastoral ministry. And Pastor Hughes drew our attention to um, a particular quote by a man named William Still. I want to read that quote to you now. So William Still says this, It is to feed the sheep on biblical truth that men are called to churches and congregations, whatever they may think they are called to do. If you think, speaking to preachers now, if you think that you are called to keep a largely worldly organization miscalled a church going, with infinitesimal doses of innocuous sub-Christian drugs or stimulants, then the only help I can give you is to advise you to give up the hope of the ministry and go and be a street scavenger, a far healthier and more godly job keeping the streets tidy than cluttering the church with a lot of worldly claptrap in the delusion that you are doing a job for God. The pastor is called to feed the sheep, even if the sheep do not want to be fed. He is certainly not to become an entertainer of goats. Let the goats entertain goats and let them do it out in goat land. You will certainly not turn goats into sheep by pandering to their goatishness. Do we really believe that the Word of God by His Spirit changes as well as Madden's men? If we do, that to be evangelists and pastors, feeders of sheep, we must be men of the Word of God can't win goats by appealing to their goatishness. But through the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, you might change them and win them. Ask yourself, if we can rely on the same tools in evangelism that Hollywood uses, that Madison Avenue uses, that Amazon uses to induce consumer decisions, are we doing true gospel ministry? Or are we appealing to the flesh to create bloated churches filled with false converts? and thin professions of faith. Brothers and sisters, let us resolve that we will only seek to win people with the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. People are only saved through that message. That message that God has sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, into the world to be a Savior for sinners, and that through His death on the cross as an atonement for sin and through His resurrection, men and women like us can be saved. If we come to Him, turning from sin, repenting of sin, and believing on Him with saving faith, that's what saves people. That's true biblical fruit, and that fruit is in God's hands. We spread the seed, we publish that message, we proclaim it, and we look to God, we plead with God 
to bring the fruit of salvation and the new birth. Now, much more quickly, fourthly, fourth implication for the church. If God is totally sovereign in salvation, we should be confident in evangelism and missions. Should be confident in evangelism and missions. I'm not going to spend much time here because we discussed this last week. Uh, But Jesus does say in John 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. We should be a church that is bold in our witness, knowing that God will draw souls effectually to His Son, the Lord Jesus. It's not presented to us as a hypothetical. It's presented to us as something that is certain. We should evangelize in hope and in confidence that if salvation is in God's hands, He will save His people, and He is pleased to use us to do it. This is why you plant churches and send missionaries to hard places. If salvation is ultimately a matter of human choice, then you would really only send the gospel to markets that are open to receiving the gospel. Look, McDonald's doesn't open a store where they don't think it's going to be successful. Why would we plant a church where we don't think people are going to come to Christ? But if you believe that people don't depend on consumer habits to embrace the gospel, but rather are subject to the power of God in salvation, then we'll plant churches in hard places. We'll send missionaries into the jungles of Papua. We'll partner with brothers like Jimmy Gann, who's ministering to needy people in India. Why send the gospel to hard places if the odds are very low that you're going to get conversions? You don't plant churches in hard places unless you have a robust confidence in the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God gives us the courage to attempt ambitious things for His glory. And so, I'm willing to give my life to go to the unreached, and I'm willing to persevere through decades of seeing very little fruit, because I know my God is sovereign. And he will have his souls. And Christ will have the prize for which he died. And he will have them through the ministry of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, if God is totally sovereign in salvation, we should be confident in evangelism and missions. Now, fifthly, if God is totally sovereign in salvation, we should trust that the Lord will work through other churches. We should trust that the Lord will work through other churches. Look, it doesn't depend on us. A high view of the sovereignty of God gives us large hearts, or ought to give us large hearts, for other churches. It's a sure way to break down territorialism and church competition, because we're not building our brand or our empire. Look, we want the elect to be gathered in, and we rejoice when God does that in other places. Some churches are doing the work of sowing. Others are doing the work of reaping. Great. There's no competition. If God is pleased to give the increase and give the fruit at the guy's church down the road, praise God. We rejoice in that kind of fruit. God's sovereign. He'll win people however He wants to win them through the ministry of the gospel. It doesn't have to happen here. It can happen anywhere. And you see, the sovereignty of God frees us. Not to be possessive about fruit. It must happen here. Look, if revival came on the other side of town, we would bless God who is sovereign in salvation, and who is winning his elect and drawing people to himself. God and his sovereignty can work in all kinds of churches, including the church down the road, and you know what? That's up to him. It is the Spirit who gives life, and if he's giving it in that church, praise God. We should trust that if God is sovereign, 
we can have joy in that he's working through other churches. Now, sixthly and finally, you've been a patient audience this morning. Sixth point, if God is totally sovereign in salvation, we should give ourselves as a church to prayer. We should give ourselves as a church to prayer. Prayer does change things. That sounds paradoxical, but it's true. The Bible teaches that prayer does change things. Further, the Bible teaches that prayer is the means that God uses to change things. Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 9, as they're looking over the crowds of sheep without a shepherd, distressed and disquieted in their souls, he says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So what? What are we going to do? Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The Lord of the harvest is going to do his work, but he calls his people to pray, and that's the means he uses to do his work. If salvation depends on the sovereign power of God, we have to go to him and plead with him to bring salvation and blessing. The flesh is no help at all. I can't affect anything in my own strength. It's the Spirit who gives life, which means I am shut up to God to pray to Him and to ask Him to work and to do what only He can do. And so if we believe that all fruit in ministry is in God's hands, and if we believe that it is the Spirit who gives life, and if we believe that no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws Him, then we must be a church committed to prayer. Must be. And so I just ask, I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes, but could we see more people at the 8.45 a.m. prayer meeting on Sunday mornings? I know that not everybody can be there, especially those of you with kids and coming from a distance or something like that. I'm not trying to be Lord of your conscience, but I think we could see more than the six of us who are there to just come a little earlier to pray that God would bring about fruit in our weekly gatherings. It was asked of Charles Spurgeon once, what is the secret of your success as a minister? And to that person who asked that question, he said, well, come with me. And he took them down to a room that he referred to as his boiler room. That's what he called it. In those days, boiler rooms provided most of the power. And there were gathered hundreds of saints who would gather earlier on Sunday morning, just in the minutes before the service, would gather to pray. And Spurgeon says, this is why I've been so fruitful. Because God's people have committed themselves to pray. Could we adopt that sort of a model? I know not everybody can do it. Not everybody can do it. But coming a little early just to gather with saints to pray for fruit, pray for God's work. Or coming on the first Sunday night of the month. That's our regular prayer meeting. We've been having some membership meetings in that place uh, the first few months of this year. But ordinarily, we gather the first Sunday night of the month to pray together. Uh, the third Sunday night of the month, like tonight, we gather here at the church to pray for missions. Might we see more coming to that time of prayer? And I'll just say, brothers and sisters, from the standpoint of church history, to my knowledge, there has never been a revival in recent history that was not preceded by a great movement of God's Spirit to call His people to pray. Perhaps you've heard the quote. I think it's a journalist who said this, a guy named P.J. O'Rourke. He said, everybody wants to save the world, but no one wants to do the dishes. 
Everyone wants to make a difference. Everyone wants to save the world. No one wants to do the dishes. Everyone wants revival. No one wants to get out of the bed a little early to pray 30 minutes before the service. Come on Sunday night to pray. We all want to see the world reach for Christ. But we purpose to gather and to call upon God and to pray. Friends, I assure you, no one will get to heaven wishing they had prayed less. And those who treasure the doctrine of divine sovereignty in salvation should pray more than all others. If the doctrine of sovereign election doesn't drive you to prayer, you don't understand the doctrine of sovereign election. Brothers and sisters, God being our helper, may we be a people who give ourselves to prayer, crying out in faith to a sovereign God. Well, there you have it. Those are six implications of the doctrine of divine sovereignty for the church. And I've preached on the subject of divine sovereignty these past two weeks for three main reasons. The first is most important because it's there in the text. And we are a Bible people, and I profess to be a preacher of the Bible. The second reason is because this doctrine ought to provide immense encouragement to Christians. The third reason is what we've considered today, namely that this doctrine has large implications for the church's life and ministry. In closing, I ask one very simple question. In light of what we've seen these past two weeks, what ought to be our posture toward the world, toward the lost, toward people who are far from Christ? If God is totally sovereign in salvation, how should we pray for them? How should we speak to lost people? What should our posture be toward those who are outside of Christ in light of the doctrine of sovereign election? We should do two things. We should plead with them to come to Christ. And then we should plead with God to save them. Let's pray together.